0: Hello and welcome to Controversies in Church History, the podcast that takes you to the most interesting, important, and yes, controversial issues in the life and long history of the Roman Catholic Church. Hello and welcome again. My name is Derek Taylor, your host for this podcast. Blessings to all of our listeners out there and to anyone uh, anyone out there who supports the podcast. I'm very appreciative of it. And yeah, if you'd like to uh, support the podcast, just go and, you know, go. you can find us on social media, on Facebook, and go like our Facebook page, YouTube channel, and go subscribe to the channel there. Also can find us on social media, Twitter. Uh, and if you would like to, are a patron of the podcast, you can do that as well. I have a Patreon account. Um, so, but in any event, uh, very thankful for our listeners, and thank you again for listening. Uh, and this is this latest episode of Controversies in Church History. And this episode is uh, something I've been thinking about a, for a while. And um, I, the backstory to this, this is one of these episodes where I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of sort of read parts of it or most of it, but not the whole thing. I have a post up on my blog, uh, my website, churchcontroversies.com. Or that's the other place you can find me on the web uh, where I link to different articles and stuff that I've written uh, right for Crisis Magazine and a couple other places. Uh, sometimes do interviews uh, with Catholic radio shows and link to there and I have one up um, just last night I think I got it up w- entitled Where Does It Say What the Pope Can't Do and the reason why I'm doing this is because you have some serious stuff going down right now if you pay attention to the news the uh, on Synod- synodality is set to meet in October and um, it's the vatican seems to be clearly preparing for this as a a major event and they've of course announced uh, back in the summer they announced uh, that victor fernandez an argentinian archbishop who's close to the pope is now the head of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith which is the the body in the vatican that um, oversees doctrine Uh, he doesn't have a great reputation for orthodoxy to say the least And all these things are going on. There's other things in the news. And one of the things I've been thinking about for a long time is what are the limits of papal authority? And this is, again, this is a history podcast. We're getting into some some theological stuff here. So I may screw it up just so that you know. But I've been looking historically, you know, where, again, long story short, I actually have an article coming out on the website One Peter Five in October on this issue. It's actually on the First Vatican Council because there are lots of issues where you know obviously because of the way pope francis has governed the church that you know the general impression i get among faithful even faithful catholics people who adhere to all the church's teachings tend to have this sense that basically the pope can do whatever he wants and, and not whatever he does is basically fine because he's the pope and of course if you're listening to this podcast you're probably a little, a little more Uh, informed, you have a little more theological and historical knowledge about these things. Uh, There, of course, he has limitations on his authority, excuse me. Um, What those limitations are has never been worked out. That's one of the reasons why we're having these conflicts, by the way, it's it's never really been fully ironed out. The tradition, um, as it's come down to us, still has not made this clear. And you'll see why in my article when it comes out in October in 1 Peter 5, explain part of this it goes back to Vatican I, it goes back before that, but our current situation is kind of shaped by the first Vatican Council. That having been said, and when I say that, when I say there, you know, the exact limits, the precise limits, all these things that have been come up in Francis's reign, um, take his uh, changing of the uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, to, to to say the, the words that the the death penalty is now in, inadmissible, right? These sorts of things. Can he do that? And where the limits come from, of course, are revelation itself. Or if you want to use the term, which is the term I hear a lot from public critics of him today, is the deposit of faith. What's the deposit of faith? Basically, everything that was revealed um by Christ to the Apostles and handed on, whether written or oral. That's one thing we need to keep in mind here, it's not just written tradition, it is oral tradition. And of course, the most important things are of course the Gospels, which get written down, but everything was oral originally, more or less, as far as we can understand it. But it's this deposit of faith that sets the limits for what the Pope can do. Now the question is, you're going to hear people who probably who are Catholic, this may sound incredible, who've never heard this. <laughs> they don't know what the positive faith is. They, they're confused. It's very confused. The church has a lot of teachings, so it's easy to get confused. It's 2,000 years old. <clears throat> and so the point of this post and the point of this podcast is I've been thinking about these issues for a long time, and I made a list of the most authoritative, clearest statements by the church uh, with authority, with magisterial authority, that the Pope actually does have limits, both to his uh, infallibility, but also to his primacy, primacy in terms of his governance of the church. And so I have a list of these, they're not long, <laughs> by the way, there aren't that many. There are more than this. Um, theologians have said this stuff for a long time. They've debate, been debating this since the High Middle Ages at the, at the earliest. So there are a lot of statements, but officially the church has never actually been keen to do this, and for reasons that'll become apparent in my article, but I'll, I won't give the game away. The reason why is, of course, the Pope doesn't like acknowledging he has limits on his authority uh, for obvious reasons. Nobody likes uh, doing that. Um, but I did make up a list of quotations um, from, they mostly come from two places. The First Vatican Council, which defined uh, papal infallibility, and the primacy. And Vatican II. There's a couple other other sources, and I'll go through these in a second. Which lay out again? I'm going to stress here: these these quotations, these documents, won't solve particular issues um, because they have to refer to the specific sources in the tradition. But these are just general statements that yes, there are limits to what the Pope can do in his office; he can't just do whatever he wants. I say this because that is sometimes the way that even Pope Francis and definitely his his. Um, his allies in Rome talk. that He can just do whatever he wants and you have to obey and you're a schismatic or you're a heretic for disagreeing. It's not true. And again, I'm, this is mostly for, uh, I'm thinking mostly people out there who, you know, uh, sort of on my, my wavelength here, but you know people who are good, decent Catholics who are like, this This sounds wrong that we're disagreeing with the Pope here. And this may sound incredible when you're talking about things like, you know, things that are trying to be pushed in this upcoming synod, like blessing of same-sex couples or ordination of women as deacons, things that, again, it's kind of complicated. They are not part of the deposit of the faith, and you can't do that without contradicting it. And the Pope can't contradict that original deposit. Again, this is something I should stress. The tradition is not totally clear on this. This is why we're having these debates. But, um, at least in my view, the, the, the presumption should be against these things basically 100%. And so I'm gonna go through some of these um, these statements. I and mean, there are several ways in which these documents I think can be used as evidence that, that there are limits on papal authority. And just to show you, I put it up there so you'll, you'll know where to the, find these statements if you want, I'll make sure the blog post, I'll try to update it when I find new stuff. Uh, I could have used other statements. There are plenty of theologians, uh, even saints who might have said certain things. But These are only mostly official documents, official statements where they're addressing this stuff. And so I divided them into a couple different categories. Um, magisterial statements on limits to infallibility, which is what people most people get worked up about, and then magisterial statements on um, on the um, uh, limits to his uh, his primacy, and I also include uh, a couple of non-magisterial statements uh, two statements that are important because they come from really important historical sources for Vatican I and Vatican II. There's also a couple of statements in there, the magisterial ones by Pope Benedict XVI because he spells this out more clearly than anybody else that I'm aware of, might be others. Like I said, if I find more, I'll, I'll go back and, and uh, update the post. And uh, and if any of you guys out there have any have any other you know magisterial statements which make this clear, let me know. I'll I'll, I'll add them to the uh, to the post. But the post lays out these these um, these statements and gives a little commentary on each of them, why they're important. And so I thought I'd go through these uh, with you. Uh, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about why they're useful for this sort of discussion or at least for replying to people that say no you have to agree on this everything the Pope says uh, about these controversial things it should be obvious by the way you sh- don't have to but if it's a matter of controversy it hasn't been decided yet but and so the first parts, in magisterial statements on limits to infallibility uh, I quote uh, uh, a few passages um, from um, Uh, from Dei Filius, which is the uh, chapter on uh, um, the uh, Constitution on, uh, on, the First Constitution, I guess it's on Revelation, on the Catholic faith, I guess. Um, I should say, yeah, on the Catholic faith, uh, from the First Vatican Council. And describes uh, one chapter, Chapter 2, Nature of Revelation, and Chapter 4 especially, um, on faith and reason. Both of these are important. I'll, I'll look at these for a second. And one of the things it says in Dei Filius in chapter 2 on Revelation is that, I'll read the quote here it says, Thanks to this divine revelation, I mean the revelation of Jesus Christ, um, those matters concerning God which are not of themselves beyond the scope of human reason can, even in the present state of the human race, be known by everyone without difficulty, with firm certitude, and with no intermingling of error. Unquote. Now, let's talk about Revelation there. And it says, you can know things that, by, that you would know with your own, know for yourself, by yourself, um, without difficulty and without uh, error because of divine revelation. In other words, grace perfects our natural ability to know things about God, right? Now, I pair that with another quotation. This is the, in, the important part of it here. This is from, that's from chapter 2, De Iphilieus. This is chapter 4 on faith and reason. This is what it says here. Even though faith is above reason, I'm quoting now, even though faith is above reason, there can never be any real disagreement between faith and reason, since since it is the same God who reveals the mystery and infuses faith, and who has endowed the human mind with the light of reason. And I actually highlight this uh, in italics in this, this passage. God cannot deny himself, nor can truth ever be in opposition to truth. And the reason why I put those passages in there is that basically they set the limits of reason for the church's teaching. Um, the church um, cannot, you know, you probably know grace can't contradict nature, right? Truths of reason cannot conflict ultimately with the truths of the faith. But this means that, by the way, if something hasn't been revealed by God or solemnly defined by the church, it can't then be uh, contradicted, right? Because that would violate one of the first rules of logic, you know, natural reasoning, which is the law of non-contradiction. And this is important because uh, all throughout this pontificate you've had the Pope himself, but much more so his supporters saying that you can, that even though the church has solemnly defined, take for example, the ordination of women, even though Pope John Paul II actually gave you a formal statement that yeah, you, you don't have the authority to do this, they want to say you can contradict these things. And, of course, the the mere suggestion that, you know, um, you can bless same-sex unions goes directly against many statements in the Old Testament. So this is one of the real important things here, right? Um, The second thing that uh, Dei Filius um, does is that it talks about revelation, which is another important uh, thing, limit on what, you know, the Church can teach and therefore the Pope. And I'll read from, this is also chapter four on faith and reason, a couple quotations here. Uh, the doctrine of the faith which God has revealed is put forward not as some philosophical discovery capable of being perfected by human intelligence, but as a divine deposit committed to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully protected and infallibly promulgated. And it goes on to say, the meaning of the sacred dogmas is ever to be maintained, which has once been declared by Holy Mother Church, and there must never be any abandonment of this sense under the pretext of a, uh, uh, under under the, under the pretext or the name of more profound understanding, and what they're saying here basically is that divine revealed faith is not like natural knowledge, which might be fundamentally transformed over time. Uh, again, natural knowledge, natural reasoning might you know change totally, um, uh, whereas the uh, the faith delivered once delivered to the saints, uh, according to the scriptures. Cannot change in that manner. Um, uh, It's basically been set. Everything that's been necessary for salvation was revealed two thousand years ago. Um, And you know uh, whether there can be slight modifications that don't affect all. We're not going into that detail, but I'm we're talking about the sort of evolutionary perspective, which you hear constantly, constantly from allies uh, of the current uh, pontificate. Um, Just to take one example, a few years ago, like four years ago, Cardinal uh, Gerhard Marx, one of the German cardinals gave a homily in which he basically said that truth is not final. He used those words, truth is not final. Which is to say it's basically saying the faith wasn't revealed completely 2,000 years ago. That we're that we are basically you know living with an ongoing revelation or something like that. Which an idea which has been condemned a lot in the modern church, but you still have these people trying to sort of get away with this. So anyway. That's Dei Filius, which, again, I think is important because it defines what the faith is in ways that make clear there are limits on what you can say about it and do with it and what it is. So that's um, from Dei Filius. I also have some quotations uh, from Pastor Eternus, which is uh, the uh, document on papal authority. Um, and so I will go through all of these, but um, it says in several places Um hopes have in the past watched that it might be preserved genuine and pure where it had been received it means the revelation and so uh, or a uh, uh, sacred deposit um, of the faith and so its main the main purpose of the church is to preserve and not reinterpret it in the light uh, reinterpret the 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 faith in cor- according to different historical epochs uh goes on to say that they have defined as doctrine. I'm quoting now, quote, defined as doctrines to be held those things which, by God's help, they knew to be in keeping with sacred scripture and, and the apostolic traditions. Um, this might sound obvious, but formal dogmatic definitions have to be in accord with tradition, you know, scripture and oral teaching. They can't openly contradict it. And then may have heard these other quotes, they're more famous, but chapter 4, when it goes to define it, Pope's infallibility says this, Quote, the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so that, that they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation or deposit of faith transmitted by the Apostles. The char- again, the charism of the papal office is not to produce novel teachings, is not to produce um, a new revelation. God's already definitively spoken. His job is to guard the teaching received from the Apostles throughout time, throughout the ages. Uh, and then finally, the last one, you probably have heard this as well. well we te- quote, this is, uh, this is the actual definition of infallibility. Quote, we teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, that is when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith and morals, faith or morals to be held by the whole church. And he's possessed of, that's when he's possessed of the divine assistance of infallibility, only then. And again, this passage is important because it indicates the Pope is only infallible when he speaks as, quote unquote, a public person. That is to say, with his public authority in the church, and not as a private person or a private teacher, which he can do. Uh, he doesn't lose his, his you know, his humanity <laughs> on becoming pope and is incapable of erring at any point. He can definitely err. Popes have erred in the past when they have been speaking in a private context. Uh, and I'll say, by, this, by, by the way, I'm interpreting that passage, as you'll see in a moment, because of other passages in Vatican II and elsewhere. So, so that's Vatican I. Vatican II has a couple of things to say on this. Um, two, two of their its constitutions. The first is Dei Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation. This is uh, chapter 1, paragraphs 4 and 6. Paragraph 4 just says what we've already stated. Quote, we now await no further new public revelation before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this implies that nothing can be added to the original deposit of faith. Everything that's necessary for salvation is already present in it. it. We already know everything we need to know uh, about it. Uh, and then in uh, paragraph 6, it says that, um, um, well, well, paragraph 6 is actually interesting because it, it actually quotes uh, and cites uh, Dei Filius from the first Vatican Council. It says, um, it is through his revelation, God's revelation with a capital H, it is through his revelation that those religious truths which are by their nature accessible to human reason can be known by all men with these, with solid certitude and with no trace of error even in the present state of the human race, so it's repeating and therefore agreeing with this idea that truths cannot can, uh, cannot contradict truth. Uh, you can't hold two contradictory truths together at the same time, meaning that the, that the church has already uh, something has already been revealed, you know, by Christ to the apostles or formally defined by the church. It can't be contra- it cannot be contradicted without violating natural reasons. So it's a natural limit on what the church can teach. Uh, the second uh, chapter of uh, Dei Verbum goes on to sort of stress, and this is more about the um, this is paragraph 10 of chapter 2. This is about the teaching office of the church, the magisterium. It says has this to say, quote, "...this teaching office is not above the word of God, but serves it, teaching only what has been handed on, listening to it devoutly, guarding it scrupulously, and explaining it faithfully in accord with a divine commission with the help of the Holy Spirit." Um, so again, the, the current magisterium, the, you're going to call it the current, whoever's running the church right now, they have to conform to revelation in their teaching. They, can, they have to conform to what's been handed down, again, by Christ, to the apostles, by a tradition. They can't just teach whatever they want. Go on. Um, it said, It's clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church in accord with God's most wise design are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. Again, the current magisterium of the church can't be separated from sacred tradition. It can't fundamentally contradict um, um, sacred tradition and things that are a part of it. So that's Dei Verbal. And then finally, last uh, quotes on infallibility. Um, well, not the last ones, but last ones from Vatican II come from Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution of the Church, uh, paragraph 25. Uh, it says here, quote, um, this infallibility which with, with, with which the Divine Redeemer willed his church to be endowed in defining doctrine of faith and morals extends as far as the deposit of, of revelation extends, which must be religiously guarded and faithfully expounded. So again, um, the infallibility, uh, fallibility, fallible authority of the church and the Pope only covers the deposit of the faith. Doesn't cover anything else. Uh, They cannot make binding what was not included in there. This is why, by the way, for example, um, again, you have some very, you know, this go back to the whole issue of the death penalty, right? Pope Francis wants to say it's a sin now, right? Um, There's a reason why people say he can't do that because it wasn't condemned as such in the deposit of the faith and you can't have a new revelation 2,000 years later that says otherwise because that would contradict it. Um, and I'm not even sure, by the way, that the people who are arguing for this really believe that, because if, if they believe what they're saying, basically they're saying that the people who, let's like we'll say you have a Catholic governor who, you know, signs off on, a, on execution for someone who's been duly convicted of, you know, rape and murder, he's now committed a mortal sin and will go to hell if he doesn't confess it. I don't, I've never heard anyone actually say that, by the way. <laughs> they just say it's a sin now without explaining, that's what the consequences of it must be. Um, but that's what they're saying Uh, that's the consequence of what they're saying anyway Uh, chapter 25 goes on to say a couple more important things Um, the Roman pontiff is uh, for talking about his um, the assistance of the Holy Spirit right, in terms of infallibility and his fallible judgment it repeats what Vatican I said that he has to do this only when he's using his authority as as a public uh, person as someone who is the head of the church So it says for then the Roman pontiff is not pronouncing judgment as a private person, but as the supreme teacher of the universal church in whom the charism of infallibility of the church itself is individually present. He is expounding or defending a doctrine of the Catholic faith, expounding or defending, explaining, defending, not making up something new. Um, So again, and only in that only when he speaks in his public office, if you want to put it that way. Goes on a couple more things. It says that when either the Roman pontiff or the body of bishops together with him defines a judgment, they pronounce it in accordance with the revelation itself, which all are obliged to abide and be in conformity with. I highlight that in italics on my website. That is, the revelation which has written or orally handed down is transmitted in its entirety through the legitimate, the, the legitimate succession of bishops and especially in the care of the Roman pontiff himself. And which under the guiding light of the spirit of truth is religiously preserved and faithfully expounded in the church Goes on to say, but a new public revelation they do not accept as pertaining to the divine positive of the faith Again, Pope Francis can go uh, You know, he he said I think a few months back during World Youth Day To Jesuits in Portugal that uh, death penalty is now a sin. He can say that as long as he likes, unfortunately That's I can't believe that's an actual magisterial statement um, that's him giving his private opinion, but it cannot be binding, at least according to Vatican II. Um, there are several others. I won't read through all of these. Maybe some of you haven't heard yet, but you get the idea. You have these. Again, you can debate this. By the way, none of these statements, by the way, is a slam dunk. You still have to interpret them. You still have to put them in context with everything else the Church teaches. But they fairly clearly um, lay out limits that there are general idea there are limits on papal authority. Again, I don't want to read all of these things and bore you to death totally. You can go to the website and look at them, but um, that's it from Vatican II. One I do want to, uh, do want to that's, those are the ones, well, you have Pope Benedict. You probably heard this quotation. This is from his uh, homily mass, the possession of the chair. Um, you know, um, when he became Pope in, in May of 2005, he said, quote, The Pope is not an absolute monarch whose thoughts and desires are law. Uh, on the contrary, the pope's ministry is a guarantee of obedience to Christ and to His Word. He must not proclaim his own ideas, but rather constantly bind himself in the Church to obedience to God's Word. So that's you know, about as close as you can get. It's a homily, but still seems magisterial to put in there. That's for limits on the um, the the uh, infallibility of the Pope. There are several statements here. Um, there are few, many fewer, actually, statements um, spelling out uh, limits to papal primacy, and the reason for that is the nature of the declaration in um, in Pastor Aternus, uh defines his 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 um, his jurisdiction in the boldest terms. It is immediate, universal, episcopal. Basically, no one can judge the Holy See. This is why people are afraid to speak out against him. But there are limits. Uh, one, actually, this is kind of implicit. It's not really stated clearly, but in the preamble to Pastor Aternas, the before you get to the actual chapters, it says that the, the council judges it, judges judges it, da, judges judges it oh my, I can't believe it, they judge it to be necessary, uh, to be, quote, necessary to propose. This is the preamble to Pastor Aeternus from the First Vatican Council. Council judges that it is, quote, necessary to propose for the belief and acceptance of all the faithful and, in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the universal church, the doctrine and the, the doctrine of the institution, perpetuity, and nature of the sacred apostolic primacy. So they're proclaiming the very, very, very um, absolute-sounding primacy of 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 the bishop of Rome. However, they put that caveat in there, and I highlight this in there. And I think this is actually important in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the Church. I think it's secundum antiquam et uh, constantem um, pide universae ecclesiae uh, in the Latin, in accordance with the ancient and constant faith of the Church. Which seems to me to at least implicitly say that the the primacy of the Pope must must accord with the ancient and uh, unchanging faith of the Church. It suggests that his authority is dependent upon his agreement with it. Uh, Otherwise, what do you need his authority for? He's going to just change things constantly. And so that's from uh, Pastor Aternas. Also something in here, this is something that's been cited by people criticizing the Pope in the last 10 years. This is one of the more important ones and one that, um, and one that, um, this is a historical source that gets in here because of what Pius IX did. This is 1875. This is the Collective Declaration of the German Bishops. Um, they're responding in 1875, uh, if you know what was going on in the 1870s, there was the German government was trying to basically suppress the Catholic Church in Germany. I actually have a podcast on this it's called the Kulterkampf. And they were, you know, seizing church property, closing church schools uh, at its at most extreme height in 1875, uh, imprisoning or exiling bishops because they thought that the the Pope's infallibility made him basically, uh, gave him carte blanche to order his his faithful to do whatever they, to do whatever they wanted to, to undermine the civil authority in Germany. (laughs) So in response to this, these German bishops wrote this declaration, which is really important, because I think it is the most explicit statement saying that the church can't, that the Pope just can't govern the church whatever way he wants to. And this is the key passage, you can read the whole thing, um, the selection is actually taken from Denzinger, if you know what that is. It's a collection of, of, of magisterial statements. And I should have mentioned this earlier at the outset. I actually have links to all the, the, the full sources for each of these quotations in the post, so you can find that stuff there. But this is the key sentence here, sentences from this collective declaration of the bishops from January, February of 1875. It says, quote, Apart from all this, the pope cannot be called an absolute monarch in ecclesiastical matters because he himself is subject to the divine right, and he is bound to the dispositions traced by Jesus Christ to his church. He cannot change the constitution given, by the, given to the church by his divine founder as a, temporal, as a temporal legislator can modify the constitution of the state. The constitution of the church is founded in all its essential points on a divine ordinance and remains beyond the reach of human arbitrariness." Uh, this is really important because it basically says the Pope cannot command command things that are contrary to the divine constitution of the faith given by Christ. So if the Pope goes out there one day and says, yeah, blessing uh, same-sex union is okay, he's directly contradicting the Old Testament. He can't do it. Uh, and it goes on to say, uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't read the rest of it, but my point about all this is that it actually was given given magisterial weight that's well, the bishops anyway but it was given even further weight by Pius IX himself he responded on march 4th of 1875 with an apostolic letter called milabillis ila Constan- uh, constantia in which he uh praised the bishops for giving the true meaning of the the Vatican council's definition of papal authority he says this quote your collective statement is so distinguished by its clarity and accuracy that it leaves nothing to be desired that it has been for us the cause of great joy and that there is no need for us to add anything to it. Your declaration gives the pure Catholic doctrine and consequently that of the Holy Council and of this Holy See perfectly established and clearly developed by obvious and irrefutable arguments. And so he's agreeing with this. The Pope is not a perfectly absolute sovereign even in ecclesiastical matters because he's... um, because he's bound by the original deposits of faith, basically. I also give, by the way, a a quotation from Benedict XVI's Address to the Roman Curia, the Christmas Address, from 2005. I think it's December 23rd. Uh, I won't read through it, but this speech is famous because this is where he introduced the distinction between what he calls the hermeneutic of continuity and the hermeneutic of rupture. But he actually says something even more important than that that in here, which is basically that he... (coughs) I won't read through it, but he basically criticizes the idea that Vatican II altered the fundamental nature of the faith because it can't. He actually invokes this idea that the church has a divine constitution, which is unchangeable, given to it by Christ. So go read through that. I also included a couple of things. I won't read through all this. It's a lot to read. You probably already you can go read it for yourself if you want. <clears throat> Make this episode too long. Excuse me. Two non-magisterial statements that are really important for context. One is uh, from the Relatio of Bishop Vincent Gasser at Vatican I from July 1st, 1870. and uh, Gasser was speaking for um, the people who were, I don't remember the name, the, the, I guess the delegations or whatever, that were actually running the First Vatican Council. In other words, he's speaking for people coming from the Curia and the Pope. And he gives a detailed exposition of... What that infallibility is supposed to mean, and he says. By the way, I won't read through all of this. There are several points I've already reiterated. The stuff about the Pope, you know, not being infallible when he when he teaches. He actually says not just as a private person, but as a private teacher. Um, he he's not he's not covered by infallibility when he's doing that. Only when he's the head, acting as the head of the church, explicitly, and doing it that way. Um, but he also says quite quite explicitly that. Um, Papal infallibility is not absolute, has limits, has conditions. Again, to be clear, these are all general statements I'm quoting here. They don't go into the details. They haven't been worked out, to be honest with you. Still something in kind of, still developing. There is a development of doctrine going on, I guess. Uh, And then finally, I give you um, both the Latin, but also a, a Google Translate English translation of a passage from the the Theological Commission, from the Acts of the Second Vatican Council, the Acta Synodalia Sacrosancti Concilii Ecumenici, Vatican II. Um, And this is a passage that was actually um, drawn to my attention by Cardinal Avery Dulles years ago in a book that he wrote, in which um, the Theological Commission basically rejects a proposed amendment to I think it was Lumen Gentium, by Paul VI <clears throat> who basically wanted to say that the Pope could act um, uh, alone uh, because he is alone you know um, he alone is basically called by God to lead the church um, and basically it meant to insinuate that the Pope had no didn't have to obey any human authority on earth effectively and it's a very fascinating passage and I'll, I won't go through all this here, but basically the, the uh, Theological Commission rejects it for a couple of reasons. <laughs> but the big reason is, um, as it says here, that it, it suggests that it has it has no the pontiff has is not bound by any other any other obligations other than his own will and it says no it says this quote uh, for the Roman pon- pontiff is also bound to observe Revelation itself the fundamental structures of the church the sacraments, the definition of, the, of previous councils, etc. All these things cannot be enumerated. In other words, there are tons of obligations he can't just um, defy because he wants to. Uh, and I'll leave you to read that uh, for yourself. Again, it's a rough translation, um, but it's an interesting uh, passage because it's explaining something about Lumen Gentium, right? They meant to spell out, you know, they didn't do it in all details. That, yes, the, the Pope has limits to his authority. <clears throat> that come from the the structure of the church itself, which cannot be changed. If you do that, you fundamentally lose the faith, uh, and then you're doomed, <laughs> uh, effectively. Anyway, that's a brief overview of those of those texts. And again, let me stress here: these aren't these texts aren't slam dunks. Um, but if somebody you know somebody you know says you just you're just being disobedient, you know well, you have to obey the pope and all these things. Because uh, again this is I'm not even thinking about these things by the way in purely intellectual terms because a lot of good faithful Catholics They pretty much if there's any one thing Most Catholics know about the about the church about their faith. They know that you have to obey the Pope They're really fuzzy on the details to say the least but the details matter and there are limits to what he can do and the things that are being proposed at this synod and on synodality uh, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller has already given uh, an interview, in which he basically said, basically came out and basically said, any Catholic official uh, that, uh, that tells you you have to accept the blessing of same-sex couples or the, or, the, or, or the ordination of women to the diaconate, that Catholics can just disobey it. He basically came out and said this. You can go find the interview. I haven't heard of it yet. So I thought this would be helpful for you. Maybe help clear up some things. Again, you can find it on my blog, uh, controversy, Controversies in Church History. It's churchcontroversies.com is the address, but you can Google for uh, "Controversy in Church History. It should come up. Uh, there's a blog post there. Where does it say that what the Pope can't do? And again, these statements say the Pope can't do certain things. They don't necessarily spell out those certain things, but they're really important for understanding these debates. And I thought I'd give you some historical context and some historical evidence to help you guys out. Uh, if you need it. So that is it for this episode of uh Church History. Remember, again, you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, <clears throat> um, YouTube, and also on the web at com. If you would also like to support what I'm doing, you can go to Patreon, Patreon, Pat- go to our Patreon account, become a patron, and uh, uh, donate there if you'd like. Uh, upcoming, uh, again, I'm getting in touch with my first interviewee, so hopefully that'll be soon for our patrons. Uh, remember, interviews are for patrons only and should be new episodes dropping. I have a few things here and there. They're going to be slow. Uh, i have already back to teaching and I have writing projects I'm working on. So uh, hopefully probably no more than two two episodes per month. So again, this is not a money-making scheme. So I'm not really, that not, not, not really all worried about it, but uh, activity is going to slow down. So I'll just let you know. But Again, forget all that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate it. The best thing you can do for the podcast is tell other people about it. Like it. Share it on social media. Share it on your Twitter page. Post it to your Facebook page. Um, uh, Let people know about it if you think it's helpful to them. I hope it is. It's what I'm trying to do. So uh, thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Uh, God bless you all, and you'll hear from me next time.